Ultimately, this movie is a little bit forgettable, but when you are watching it in the moment, it is great fun, and it's a worthy addition to the 1966 top 10. I mean, how many movies contain a completely unerotic, erotic spider dance sequence uh, where, in it, a scantily clad woman wriggles her way horizontally across an oversized web in front of this leching audience? I mean, it's not that common. Yet even though this one is crafted by the legendary Spanish director, Jess Franco, it is still completely underseen. So I'm not going to be giving you any spoilers at all here. And in total, I've now seen seven of his movies, and this is my favourite. It's close, but this is my favourite. Close on its tail is The Demons from 1973. Needless to say, even though this one is shot in glorious black and white, the lighting and the use of shadows, especially on this train sequence which happens, it is stunning. I think all you need to know, really, is that this is a revenge film and it's got some added flair from the filmmaking and not as much filth, just general filth as you would expect in a Franco work. This is the diabolical Dr. Z. Nothing can strip your nerves screamingly raw like the diabolical Dr. Z and his doubly diabolical daughter. thrills can you take? Warning, this picture is for people with nerves of steel. Get rid of her right away. Here is your le- do the trailer. Here is the letterboxed synopsis. Nothing ever stripped your nerves screamingly raw like the diabolical Dr. Z. A woman seeks to avenge her father's death by using a local dancer with long poisonous fingernails to do her bidding. we're going straight into the music now and yeah that music you just heard is played over the spider dance scene and what is odd about this score is it's jazz there is so much jazz it's 
jazz <laughs> so much. Uh, it is being played throughout most of the film. Sometimes it's easygoing jazz, other times it's freaky freak out jazz, and then sometimes it's just complete free jazz. But you're getting the gist here. It's just jazz. The sound design also is really dark and powerful. The palette that is used for kills, for squishes, for screams even, it elevates this above some similar run-of-the-mill revenge horrors of the time. And as I say, the screaming, it's odd. It seems amplified and more intense than any actor's usual scream. There must be some effect that's being put on them there. But with this movie in general, and definitely the soundtrack, there is limited information out there on the creation of this oddball movie. I'm not going to believe what Wikipedia tells me here, because there's just too many differing accounts out there, but none of them go into any detail. So, where can you find it? Well, here's the thing. This one is definitely out there, and it's available for you to buy, but it is quite expensive, so just bear that in mind. I couldn't find it streaming anywhere either. So I took the punt and I got it, just because I'm getting used to Franco's work now. And I do understand that this then makes it a movie that you may skip over, but please add it to your lists if you haven't seen it before, because when it does randomly turn up on streaming at some point, and you know that it will, at least it might ring a bell in your head, and then you've got this joyous Spanish gem to give a spin. As for podcasts, well, there are not any shows out there dealing with Dr. Z directly, but, if I may, I would like to point you into the direction of the Important Cinema Club podcast. They do a really interesting two-parter on Jess Franco. You will need to search back into however you search on these devices to January 2019 for that one. But it's well worth a listen. And that's it. The rather short, the rather sweet, the diabolical Dr. Z. great fan of the Japanese Keiju films. I like giant monsters as much as the next horror fan, but apart from the first Godzilla movie, they rarely hit my top tens. Where this one differs though, is the world building of the history and the myth around the monster itself. Tetsuro Yoshida, he is the writer and had crafted one of these movies that just pulls you in. It's crafted in a similar style to a modern day film with a clear set of parameters, a beginning, a middle and an ending. But what is key here is that the human character building and the conversations they have, they're engaging enough to actually pull you in and that is throughout the movie's full 84 minute running time. This is Dimogen. giant stone statue comes to life to protect the residents of a small town against the depredations of an evil warlord. 
So yes, I enjoyed this way more than the Godzilla movie that I thought it would ape. How wrong was I? This is a tale of vengeance without sentimentality just sprinkled on top of it just to keep it light. Oh no, this is pretty harsh. The effects work on it is also great. It has a really tight script. I would say this is some jolly good work. Thanks, Kimiyoshi Yasuda. Akira Ifakubi, he scored this movie just as he did with Godzilla in 1954 and Rodan the Flying Monster in 1956. Now you've just heard the main title to this one and I have to admit to you, I simply just love this stuff pretty much in the same way that I actually love this movie. When not dealing with the monster directly, the score is really cleverly holding itself back with subtler dynamic changes and less gravitas, but it is always still interesting. I didn't notice any themes for the human characters though, which may be a missed trick, but anyway, this movie is about Damogen. The horns and the strings combine to add weight to the whole affair as the creature crushes buildings underfoot and directly alters the trajectory of the town folk's lives. It's all going to be crap from here on in, and you know that's a fact because the swell of the horns is happening, it apes a funeral march in places. It is great fun, it is quite a serious listen as well, and a big plus here is that most of it is on YouTube. And where can you find it? Well, it's the Arrow box set, right? Arrow put out a box set in 2020. I think it was 2020. Yeah, let's say 2020. With all three movies included in one beautiful looking box set. It would be a little bit of a dick move if I didn't mention that YouTube also has a decent transfer on it with English dubs. And that's how I viewed it because I just simply couldn't afford another box set. That YouTube transfer, though, has been viewed 56,000 times. Not all by me. Not all by me, I promise. But you can see it's well-loved. Uh, as for podcasts, I would head over to Monster Attack Podcast. They did their episode on Daimajin uh, in March 2020. Yeah, that's what I've written down here. Or, you know you're in safe hands with the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. They did their chat back in August 2021. And that's it. I'm saying Damogen. Some people that I've heard have said Dimogen. So I did include a couple of Dimogens. I don't know how you actually pronounce it. But I can guarantee I've definitely got it wrong. I think it's best to move on. This one stars a 30-year-old Dennis Hopper and he looks crazy young in this. I guess nowadays that is the calling card of this movie. It's a huge star's early work, but if you look under the hood of this movie, then there is a wealth of riches to discover. 
Initially, it was released as a double feature with Bloodbath, a film which I did pop into my worst 10 films from this year. I wasn't that impressed with that one at all. This is by far the more interesting movie. In essence, this mixes the alien movie synopsis with the vampire myth, and although I can almost see every single beat before it actually happens, you have to remember that this is a really early take on these now tropes, I would guess you would say, and its B-movie status doesn't really hinder its watchability in any way. In fact, I would say it adds to it. This is Queen of Blood. Queen of Blood. A tantalizing, mystifying enigma. She's gorged herself of fresh blood. She's a monster. We have a good supply of blood plasma with us. We'll use that to feed her. And if we run out of plasma, Commander? And here is that letterbox synopsis. New highs in blood-chilling horror. A spaceship is sent to Mars after an alien distress signal is picked up. They find one survivor, but when a crew member is found drained of blood, it is evident that they have rescued a blood-sucking monster. Now, Curtis Harrington directed Queen of Blood, and this film looks remarkable today. It is so vibrant. The poster itself says it's filmed in Pathe colour. I should have looked that up, no idea what that is. But I can tell you, whatever it is, it just looks delightful. It is saturated and deep, especially the purples and the reds. It just adds another level to my enjoyment with this whole out of space adventure. And one of my favourite effects in this film is when the vampire's glowing eyes burn through the rope. Harrington told an interviewer that they actually achieved this effect on set by directing a pencil-thin beam of light into Florence Marley's eyes. She plays the aforementioned Queen of Blood, and I mean, ouch. In fact, I got so excited about Queen of Blood and the way in which Harrington directed this, that I bought his first major feature on the indicated Blu-ray label. The one that I bought is called Night Tide, and I'll let you know how that one pans out. Now I hear what you're thinking here, you're thinking that sounded a little bit cheesy and very much more suited to 50s sci-fi horrors than the 60s, but I don't know. Personally, I think this is great work. It's by Leonard Moran and if you want to listen to the whole thing, Fishman once again has put up the full isolated score here on YouTube. It's a delight. 
And the reason why I think this one really works is as it very much sounds like a less crazy, a less out there forbidden planet. If you think like that, and you're a bit like me, maybe you'll just get that whole drift of the thing and you'll really enjoy it like I did. There's lots of theremin sounds and what sounds like moogs, but probably aren't. And also you've got this full orchestral score, which is mixed in as well. I don't know, it's pretty enticing. Again, it's not the complete thing. All that we can hear is what is what is actually on the movie. I'd love to hear a full reworked score from the actual tapes. Stick it on some vinyl, sell it to me. I would love that. I guess we're just not there yet. Regardless, where can you find this? Well, in the UK, you can stream it for free on Plex. And in the USA, it is on Plex. Paramount, Epics, and DirecTV, all streaming for free there. As a physical product, you can only get this one as a Spanish import right now. But if, like me, none of these options appeal, then you can stream it for free on YouTube. As for podcasts, there's this great one from the Spoiler Room podcast, and that was August 2021, and one that I haven't actually listened to yet, which goes on for about 80 minutes, solely on Queen of Blood. It's called Castle of Horror. Um, yeah, the Castle of Horror podcast. And I think that one, I didn't write it down. It's definitely 2018. Let me just look it up. March 2018 it was. And that's your lot. That is Queen of Blood. So you think you like what is now horribly, horribly described as elevated horror. Even though, I think I'd just rather call it horror. People didn't call Repulsion or Rosemary's Baby elevated horror, and it didn't do them any harm. But saying that, if putting a ridiculous describer on the front end of a genre is what it takes to attract highly skilled directors and actors and writers and producers, cinematographers, etc., etc., if that's what it takes to bring them to the mix, then why not? And back in the USA in 1966, there was a high concept, progressive and pompously up its own ass way of thinking, and it was in full effect. Producer, writer and director Leslie Stevens had just finished his tenure as a showrunner for the successful series The Outer Limits and chose to next direct a horror film. For his lead in the film, he needed to cast somebody incredibly talented, incredibly good looking, someone that audiences would believe could resist the ultimate temptation. And with that criteria in mind, a pre-Star Trek William Shatner was hired. And what is more to add to the otherworldly and hyper-concept script, he decided that this movie should be shot with every actor speaking in Esperanto, which is an artificial language constructed in 1887 by L.L. Zamenhof, who was a Polish occultist and intended for use as an international second language. It is still spoken around the world today in little pockets of land, mainly in Europe. That's what I read anyway. So you want elevated, you've got elevated. Regardless of all that though, this is a hench movie. This is Incubus. Before the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Before Night of the Living Dead. Even before Star Trek. There was 
Incubus. Incubus, the long-lost cult classic, is now available on home video. Incubus, starring William Shatner, is the only film shot entirely in the artificial language of Esperanto. and has been rediscovered and remastered to terrify all those who didn't see it before. Now, audiences can once again thrill to the horror of satanic ritual, tingle with excitement at the Succubi Sisters, and look on with bewilderment as William Shatner speaks in tongues. Lost in a film vault in France for nearly 35 years, it was rediscovered by producer Anthony Taylor. Incubus, a masterpiece of expressionistic horror, does not disappoint. Weird and wonderful, the effect is maximum terror. Incubus. And here is a very short letterboxed synopsis. Evil has never been so seductive. On a strange island inhabited by demons and spirits, a man battles the forces of evil. So, can I believe that this William Shatner is so righteous that he can turn the will of the devil into that of light from darkness? Yes, yes I can. But that's in hindsight, I guess, of what's followed in his career. As I said, this was before Star Trek, and regardless of my personal thoughts in this casting, there is no denying that he is great in this. Even at this point in his career, his mannerisms are grand and full of theatrical flourish. He can tone it back when needed, but it does really suit the story here, and I've got to admit, he just carries this film masterfully. And this is not a popular movie today by any means, but there is this underground resurgence of horror fans that keep discovering it. It's how I discovered it. Word of mouth. In fact, last year it did hit the thousand mark on Letterboxd and it's still climbing. Slowly but surely, every single day, more people were logging this as seen. I can wholeheartedly recommend it to you and I can't see it being too long until Criterion or Arrow get in on the action because it is a near classic. And I'm not going to tell you any more of the plot. You already know enough going into this. It is free to watch. There is nothing stopping you. I say, get on it. Once again, this score was not released commercially, but yet again, the YouTuber called Fishman has extracted the music from the movie and uploaded it to the streaming platform. This time though, I don't think there is enough here to judge as a whole. I can tell you that the piece we just heard was conducted by Dominic Frontier, 
But in the comments underneath it, it does mention that the music was originally used for the TV show The Outer Limits, which does make sense as the director just came fresh from The Outer Limits. And of course, this sort of thing was commonplace back in the 50s and 60s, where if a movie was short of funds and they couldn't afford to commission a new score, they'd just go to the studio vaults and buy pieces to fit whatever sort of mood or scene that needed it. Famously, Night of the Living Dead, which came out a couple of years after this, did just the same thing. And where can you find this? Well, you can definitely find it on YouTube. That's where I watched it. Uh, and there was a DVD that came out several years ago, and I really wanted it, but I couldn't locate it anywhere at a reasonable price. Let's just say that. It was so crazily expensive. But I can tell you that later this year, when the boot fairs happen, if they happen then I'll definitely be scouring for this one because, I don't know, I want it in my collection. As for podcasts, again, I can't find me a single one, not at all. Which is really odd because Incubus should be talked about. There is a definite gap in the market, I reckon. This film comes highly recommended from me. This film was Incubus. director John Gilling brought us Mother Riley meets the vampires and the gamma people. In the 1960s, he delivered The Flesh and the Fiends, The Shadow of the Cat, Blood Beast from Outer Space, The Reptile and The Mummy Shroud. And to wrap up his horror career, in 1975, he returned to the genre with Cross of the Devil. Now, from this set, I've only seen The Reptile, and you know, that's alright, that's okay. But how exciting does a title like Blood Beast from Outer Space sound? I cannot wait to see that. Regardless, in 1966, he also delivered another movie into the pile, and it is my third favourite from the whole of 1966. In this one, we visit the zombie myth. Two years before the zombies that we know and love, or hate, now existed and that was all thanks to George A. Romero when he invented the whole zombie craze with the Night of the Living Dead. This is a brilliant early take on the zombie and it wouldn't work I don't think unless the makeup was spot on and it really is fantastic in places here thanks to Roy Ashton. Now he also worked on my number one pick from 1966. He was a very busy man in this year. He also dealt with the reptile and Rasputin the Mad Monk. Both of those for Hammer. So, I've watched this one now three times in two years. I'm starting to really love this. It is The Plague of the Zombies.
launch is bound for a terrifying destination. Dead. But no corpse can remain at peace in this village of the undead, this land of the zombies. In this place, no one is safe. No one can hide from witchcraft, superstition, and fear. Even Sir James Forbes, the clear-headed man of science, was forced to accept the horrifying facts. Young Martinus also says that he saw something on the moors, something that he insists was his brother. But we know that his brother is dead. We also know that he is not lying in his coffin. Someone in this village is practicing witchcraft. That corpse wandering on the moors is an undead a zombie. <laughs> A place dominated by men without morals, whose bloodlusts are excited by hunting a human quarry. When Sylvia Forbes hated the young squire, it was dangerous. But when she fell in love with him, it was lethal. And here is that wonderful letterboxed synopsis. Only the Lord of the Dead could unleash them. Sir James Forbes arrives in a remote Cornish village to identify a mysterious plague that is afflicting the population. Local squire Charles, a disciple of Haitian witchcraft, is using the voodoo magic to resurrect the dead to work in his decrepit and unsafe tin mines that are shunned by the local population. But his magic relies on human sacrifice and he unleashes his army of the undead onto the unsuspecting village with horrific consequences. So, let's welcome podcast regular, filmmaker, photographer, Benjamin Bowles, who's back with A Year in Horror. And just before we launch into our conversation, I also want to mention that I really rated actor Diane Clare in this one. When she was up against those various threats in this, she put in a performance that was way more than needed. And it made the viewer feel that her peril was all the more believable. Because, well, she just got the acting chops. She just got them. I can't wait to see her in the 1964 Don Sharp directed movie called Witchcraft. That is on my list. I have that coming for later on in the year. But right now, let's get back to Ben and myself speaking a couple of months ago now all about the plague of the zombies. Ben, <laughs> how you doing, buddy? I'm well, Paul. How are you? Good. Um, we've already had a, a how was Christmas discussion. Uh, I think we can both tick that as Christmas is done. Yeah, the personal stuff is out of the way now. It's now it's uh, down to flesh eating zombies. Perfect. Did you find this to be work watching Plague of the Zombies, or did you enjoy it? It wasn't work. No, I did. I enjoyed this film. I enjoyed this film. There was a few things <laughs> already. Well, let's 
let's start let's start at the running time where i always like to start with my films <laughs> yeah one hour 26 bosh we're off to a good start could be better it could be 80 minutes i would think that one <clears throat> yeah yeah possibly possibly but what i did like about the film is well the the length but and alongside that is that seemingly and and why i love doing this show and i love talking to you about films is because it was it, i watch films that generally i wouldn't i probably wouldn't watch and what i have noticed now there's going to be probably people listening to this thinking, oh yeah of course of course this is the case because you know if you've got expanded and good knowledge of these genres and, and this sort of decade but seemingly films around this time they don't really bother too much about character arcs and B and C stories. They just get in, tell the story and get out. There's very little, there's exposition, but there's not exposition in terms of character. Like they, they, they don't go too deep, well, the, the films that I've seen, too deep into character. And I think that's, a, that's the case for, the, for this film. It's very much a case of um, all the characters are quite, I wouldn't say shallow, but there's not too, many, there's not too much depth to, to any of the, the characters. It's very much about the mystery about what's going on, which is absolutely fine. Um, because I think that if this was, just say this was remade now, it would go on for two hours 15 for no apparent reason. So I don't think there's anything wrong with, with um, the way it's made. But I enjoyed it, Paul, yeah. Well, I think you've brought up a really good point with Hammer films in general there, I think, because they're not exploitation films. What they they, they are to me is they they really know what they want and they're just going to bang, bang, bang. We're a B-movie. You're going to yes. get a really good B-movie here. We're going to take everything as far as we can. We're going to push it as far as we can without going too over the top. And then you're out. It's not like Roman Polanski where there's like hidden meanings, triple hidden meanings and things like that. And he was brewing around at this time as well. It's not like that. We're not going to that extra level. It is just fun, but it's serious fun. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like these aren't carry on screaming or anything like that. There, there's no mm-hmm. nods and winks. They're trying to be serious. But at the same time, as you say, it is, it's just in and out. It's a B movie bit of wonderment, I think. When it first came out, it would have absolutely been serious because it was one of its first of its kind, wasn't it? But it's, it's only because we're watching it in 2021 that some of it isn't that serious because it looks so dated. But that's, you know, you can't do anything about that. Does this film work with today's eyes? It, it, you know, when it finished, did you think, oh, do you know what? I, I, got, I got all that. I know the beats. Or was it just something missing? Weirdly, there was something missing until the last sort of 15 minutes where it all came to a head and I loved when they went down the mine and there's fire everywhere for no apparent reason and uh, the fight scene which was excellent in its hamminess and how comical the whole thing was there was a, a little sort of spot in the scene where you can actually see the guy being chucked to, down to the to the ground and putting his arm his his right arm out so it gets on fire. It's absolutely brilliant. And then, but but that's the sort of the, the trigger point for the, the finale, really, isn't it? And um, yeah, I, I think I love the chaos. I love the mayhem. And I think actually, without that really strong ending, I'd feel a bit let down by the whole thing. But that brought everything up for me. Um, and it was it was a slow and steady build to that crescendo, to that finale of, of mayhem. 
which was for me yeah it worked it worked really well and so yeah the ending to a certain extent saved it i'm glad you think so because i was getting lost earlier on than that because i i thought it was setting itself up to be a completely different film you know in modern day films you got the jocks uh, and yeah. they're all bullying someone and that's giving your your main character some sort of arc to to move on to a bit later uh, to get to get over this or to get one back well here this is the i think the beginning of the trope that i've seen anywhere where you've got the huntsmen who are the the you know the the jocks if you will for this one and it goes really harsh really quick like they're pulling cards to see who's going to rape someone at one point you know it's like whoa what sort of film are we in here is this like hmm. you know just a, a bunch of guys that are gonna because this is a zombie film right am i watching a zombie film i don't know and these jocks they're they're, they're like right okay this is this is setting up one sort of film but hang on we've just seen some voodoo rituals or i think that that's what was going on there there was definite people of color which was an odd thing to see in a film that really shouldn't have been there you can see why that sort of thing didn't linger too much after this um and i was just like all these different ideas coming together and i didn't know which one would stick until like you say the ending is where oh no that is what's going on all along it is the the, these slaves that are mining or whatever it's just it's a weird bloody film yeah there there is some problematic parts to it but i but in 1966 it probably wouldn't be seen as problematic but the fact that the people of colour in the film are literally just drummers and wait, you know, butlers essentially, which is which is yeah, not not the best in terms of um, 2021 eyes. You mentioned the Huntsman. Yes, that did that that did raise a smile. Um, that scene where she um, tells the, t- the Huntsman to go the wrong way, basically. And then, and then I talked about exposition and being on the nose earlier on. And then the dad goes, "Oh, I hope you don't see them later on. They're going to be very annoyed at you." There was another bit that really stood out. I'm talking about like individual scenes right now, but it's part of the violence, really. And it's the the main bit that I because I've seen this film many years before, but I didn't realise I'd seen it. Uh, and the bit that jogged my memory was this iconic decapitation. Uh, you got. Uh, Alice as a zombie crawling out of the grave it's quite the violent scene for the time we've got a decapitation there and I know it's lovely quick edits but I'm just wondering Ben being a filmmaker yourself what did you make of that whole thing did those quick edits ruin it for you it's difficult because it's clunky it doesn't flow at all it doesn't but but you can't but you can't criticize it because of its time and, and, and the technology, you, you know, they couldn't just put it in DaVinci Resolve or Premiere Pro and just have a, a play around with it. I mean, this was really clunky mechanisms, how they um, how they put these and PCs films together. So, yeah, it was clunky. But, yeah, I, I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to criticize a film from 1966 for, for poor editing, because that was just what they were um, up against at the time. And another thing with these Hammer ones is by this point in Hammer's history, they were filming two at once. So you would see the yeah. same sets used again for another film. Uh, I think this one was a reptile, but I'm doing that off memory, I think. Um, no, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're yeah. right. They, they filmed them back to back. Yeah. 
so you can tell that there are really tight budget restraints, but I still think, you know, with a little bit more planning, I think that decapitation, even though it was something then reading some of the, um, the reviews and things uh, and watching some extras, I know it was quite effective back then. And it was a shock moment uh, that made yeah. people want to yeah. come back and see that again, because those edits just make it so quick. You're not sure what you've seen, but yeah, yeah. our experienced yeah. eyes were like, Oh, come on. You could have done better than, like tuk, 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 done uh, yeah yeah the, the timing's off but it's um as i said it's, it's difficult to criticize because they just didn't have the tools to do it probably and as you say a good point they probably didn't have the time um they they, they probably could have made a better job if they really spent potentially hours and, and or even days putting it together timing it right but um with with the production back back-to-back productions on the same set which is excellent um <laughs> Yeah, you just can't do it. Something I think they got really right here, but I don't know, looking at your eyes, whether you would agree. I think the zombies are great. Good enough. <laughs> Good enough. They they didn't, when I first saw them, there's a, there's a really nice scene, and from, and from what I can remember, it's the first time you probably see one where the zombie's holding Alice, must be Alice. Yeah. And, you, and, and then and it's a really nice camera angle looking up at the zombie and the zombies looking straight down. That's really nice. And that's the sort of first proper visuals you get. And yeah, and it didn't take me out. That that would be my main point. It's, it was good enough, um, again, because it's 1966, and it didn't look so hammy that it took it took me out of the, the scene. Um, and a point about camera angles or the cinematography in general, I thought it was really strong. There's some really nice shots in there. Um, the photography is beautiful. Some of the the way the frames are set out, really, there's really nice depth going on, and just just sort of silly things, but things that certainly told me that the the production was was really thinking about the visual side of things. Is there was a there was a scene in the, I believe it was a kitchen, and instead of just doing a normal two shot it was sort of up in the ceiling, like looking down. And I, and I presume, again, at that time, yeah. in 1966, that just wouldn't happen. So there was a really nice, yeah, the visuals were really thought about, and the visuals were, were looked really nice throughout, just as an aside, really. I thought that was a bit, um, an observation. But going back to your zombies, yes, I would say, <laughs> the thing is that there's just no CG whatsoever. It's all practicals. It's all humans doing makeup and working on other humans so you've got to take that into account and i yeah i think they were, they were as i said they were good enough paul what did you think i i as i say i loved them um yeah i'm, I'm going to come back to something you said that first point where you see a zombie throw throw her down into sort of like a, a moat or a gully i mm-hmm. don't know what it is but it's it's horrible yeah it's a real scary scene and it's the one bit of the film that will make you go oh Jesus, if anything is going to from this film, it's going to be that mm. moment. Because mm. the, the noise also coming out of the zombie is a sort of ghastly, like, throaty... And it, <laughs> <laughs> I quite liked it. I, really, I enjoyed it. And you're right, what an angle to, to film that at. Um, yeah. It wouldn't have been your obvious choice. Like, there, no, would have, there no. should have been a lot more close-ups than there wasn't, but... It was framed really well, blocked really well, and yeah, it looked great. Yeah, I I agree. I these zombies though, I think they're better than what came ten years later. Like we hadn't moved on that much. Two years later, after this was Night of the Living Dead, there 
at best they've got those zombies have got a bit of dirt on them, a little bit of mm. white paint, you know. And then going to Romero's sequels again, yeah. a bit of green paint, you know, and a bit of blood trickling down the face. It might be a bit more gory, but it's not until really later on where that you know people are like, for instance, on Game of Thrones, where you've come to the point where those zombies just looks absolutely incredible, you know, yeah. those Walking Dead type things so yeah i'm i was really happy with them i just thought this was a proper smart movie from beginning to end and i guess from going back to what you said at the beginning ben if it was two hours you'd just be like oh, for fuck's sake but because it is so choppy and so neat and so tight i, I was happy all the way i just that my issue with it is at the beginning i don't know what the hell's going on with these the jock huntsmen <laughs> What what is going on? Why are they even there? What just oh, it's annoying. If there was a zombie movie released tomorrow, there was there's a really good chance that that zombie would bear resemblance to this film. So, and of course they change slightly. There's there's little subtle differences. You mentioned Romero earlier on, but it does show that 60 years later, the influence of this film because. If there's, if the, because the zombies haven't changed in terms of visuals that much because of this. So it's a sort of the, the blueprint, the blueprint of zombies, um, you could say. So, yeah, I mean, I think I certainly don't know enough about the genres and the subgenres to, to pick out various films where there's been more influence. But just from, a, a, I suppose, an outsider looking in, the, the zombies from 1966 probably don't look that different from 2021 generally speaking and that's because of this you would think that's because of this film so yeah massively massively influential um, and a starting point for yeah the, the, the zombie characters for me i would say it's influential for the jock characters <laughs> they've really <laughs> bugged me ben yeah, they did right. okay right well hey ben Thank you very much for coming on to the show and chatting a bit about Plague of the Zombies. It's another weird one, and but I think, I mean, just an inside little thing for the listeners, we've already, we already know what's going to be next month, and it's a lot more modern. So we've basically, for, for you, we've crept up from the 20s, we've now done the, the 50s, and you've done 66. So going forward, it's going to be interesting now to get real modern with you. So I can't wait to, to hear from you then. I'm looking forward to it already, Paul. Once again, this score is composed by James Bernard. And this one is a blinder. The balls on this one. This is Hammer Horror 101. The horns either play it fierce and with bombast, or they gradually escalate from malevolently quiet to fierce and with bombast again. There's just no let up. The mad fuck. There is a moment where things chill right down and you get this wind chime motif happening. And it's a part of the film where it focuses in on a zombie slave. 
and it's the first time that you can take a breather when you're listening to this score. But don't get me wrong, it still does build and then build and then build and over the space of three minutes, it gets so loud again that it just throttles you. There's no denying this. The Plague of the Zombies score is outrageously bold. And I think, for once, it's all the better for it. There is just no chill at all. And where can you watch The Plague of the Zombies? Well, I have the DVD Hammer box set uh, that is still available out there if you want to look for it. It's in a square box that's black coloured with some red embossed stuff on it. And it may be just about the best ever Christmas Prezi that Claire's ever bought me. But if you didn't marry Claire, then you can also stream this one on YouTube. It is free of charge and the transfer is pretty good to boot. As for podcasts, the mighty, the super, the duper Evolution of Horror, they did a whole episode on this one back in September 2019. And this being one of the episodes that actually brought me into horror podcasting, I'm going to say stick with that. You don't need anything else. They do a super deep dive on it, and it's so good, along with one of theirs for Possession, it got me into horror podcasting. And that's your lot for Plague of the Zombies. Much appreciation goes out there to Ben. What could be number two? This is a Mario Bava masterwork as far as I can see it. The story is just tight enough to hang everything else on it. And the mad thing is, this project ran out of money halfway through the production and it still looks this beautiful. It does seem that when his back is against the wall, Bava flourishes. One of the key effects in this movie is the wavy, distorted vision moments. It was simply pieced together by Bava by using angled and prismed glass against the camera. And me being me, I've had first-hand experience of this very technique being implemented. So when I was being filmed for some close-up scenes in one of my band's videos, the director of that was also using this prism glass technique. And the end results, they were just stunning. It's an easy thing to do, but it just adds to this otherworldly feel. Just look at the Beatles' Rubber Soul front cover. Again, this one was just captured by using a similar technique with an angled mirror. I just love it. But anyway, even filming in black and white when he made Black Sunday, uh, the beauty and the vibrancy that jumps off the screen is pretty startling to me. Again, it is otherworldly in the way in which it melds that horrific subject matter and gross happenings on the screen, and yet it just looks so beautiful. Then three years later in 1963, we had both Black Sabbath and The Whip and The Body from Barber. And with those, you had the introduction of colour, and that just added this further immaculate visual experience into the mix. Now, the next Barva movie after that, Blood and Black Lace, I've yet to see. But then for genre fans, we get to this. This is Kill, Baby, Kill. I'm sure the inspector's here. Get out of my sight or you'll be sorry. It's like running headlong into a wall of silence. They are suspicious, distrustful, and the way they react to my questions. 
box synopsis reads as follows kill baby kill makes you shiver and quiver a 20th century european village is haunted by the ghost of a murderous little girl and that's your lot with that now i was meant to be chatting with mark canali for this one today but the guy's got covid his daughter started nursery and would you believe it family is down He did say that he felt pretty rubbish and he couldn't bear the thought of coughing his way through a chat with me. Also, oddly, he mentioned he would probably end up falling asleep because he's so fatigued. That part I found shocking. But would you believe it? When he feels up to chatting again, what I'm going to do is put out that full discussion for everyone to hear. We'll do it as a bit of a bonus content, just like we did last month with Sister Hyde when we talked about Kaltiki, the immortal monster. Again, another Bava film. The score by Carlo Rusticelli. It adds as much to this movie as the cinematography does. Now, he died at the age of 88 in 2004 and had by this time amassed well over 100 film music credits to his name. Yet he didn't delve in horror that much. A few years before he did Kill Baby Kill, he scored The Whip and the Body and Blood and Black Lace for Barber. And whilst they do sound crazy similar in places, the way in which the music complements what's taking place on the screen is truly wonderful here. And I think because the film ran out of money, it is mentioned in a few places online that this score in particular is pieced together from his other works. I recognise some of the theatrical stabs from The Whip in the Body, for instance, but please don't hold me to it. I could be wrong, but it does sound very close. It does make sense to me, but if it is the case, my word, this has been compiled to such an incredibly high standard. You would never know. When I think of a mid-60s score, my mind immediately thinks of the traditional Hammer horror movies of this period, And they tend to blend a faux gothic aura with traditional brassy sounds and viola-laden templates to reach all them horror highs, right? But Rusticelli, he hits those highs in this just one score. 
I would definitely say that it riffs on the best of what Hammer brings to the table, but then it adds its own bells and whistles. And I, I wouldn't be lying with that. There are actually bells, there are actually whistles all over this thing. I also noticed some guitars on this, although they are used in quite a percussive way. And again, the tuba is popping up here and there as well to emphasise just the gravity of the threat brought to the townsfolk by the kid ghost. It is proper impressive. And once more, as I say, I couldn't find any evidence online that this has had ever a physical release. But as per usual, Fishman, whoever you are, he's uploaded what he can to YouTube. He's doing the Lord's work. And where can you find Kill Baby Kill? Well, in the USA, you can stream it on AMC Plus and on Shudder. But in the UK, I could only locate this on the Arrow Blu-ray, which, of course, I bought in one of their sales. And I'm proper chuffed with myself that I did. As for podcasts, unfortunately, I could not find any specific podcast about Kill Baby Kill. But I did enjoy listening to Director's Club. Uh, they did a double parter on Mario Bava, and that came out way back at the beginning of time for podcasting in November 2013. But that is your lot. Kill, baby, kill! today's money, my top choice for 1966 would have only cost 2 million to make and yet it made 44.5 million in return. It was a hit, yet it's difficult to pinpoint just where this movie gets it so right. It's a hammer horror and yet it's a sequel, which usually means that we've got diminishing returns across a franchise. And yet for me, and by the looks of it, me alone. I prefer this very incarnation of Dracula to that of the one in the 1958 movie. Even though that one made my number 10 film in my favourite movies from the 50s, this one is far pacier, less gothic in feel and presentation, it feels rough around the edges and that is probably due to a budget squeeze and yet it's not that that I love so much, it's Christopher Lee himself playing Dracula. He is foul. He is sickening. This is his best role for me. He's an actually frightening Dracula. And maybe it's due to those red streaks in his eyes. Maybe it's the fact that he doesn't utter a word, but he just hisses his way through the whole movie. Maybe, though, it is just Christopher Lee relishing this role. He commands your attention. By 1966, he had truly, truly become... Dracula, Prince of Darkness. At this lonely crossroad in the Carpathian Mountains, four travellers find themselves abandoned at nightfall by a local coach driver who was afraid to go any further. There's no driver. A coach with horses that knew the way. A table laid for four. Was this kindly hospitality? Isn't your master joining us for dinner? Well, sir, 
I'm afraid not. Is he indisposed? He's dead. Why should a dead man be interested in entertaining guests? Dracula, Prince of Darkness, King of the Vampires. For ten years, his mortal remains were cherished by his faithful servant, awaiting the opportunity and a victim to provide the life force for the reincarnation of Dracula. And this one's got a rather hefty letterbox synopsis. So let's clear my throat <coughs> and get on with it. Dead for ten years, Dracula, Prince of Darkness, lives again. Whilst vacationing... <laughs> I'm so shit at this. Uh, whilst vacationing in the Carpathian Mountains, two couples stumble across the remains of Count Dracula's castle. The Count's trusted servant kills one of the men, suspending the body over the Count's ashes so that the blood drips from the corpse and saturates the blackened remains. The ritual is completed, the Count revived, and his attention focuses on the dead man's wife, who is to become his partner, devoted to an existence of depravity and evil. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce to you Sam Law. And I knew of this guy's work before I met him. He's a writer at Kerrang! magazine. And it's quite the rare thing for me that a music journalist's tastes just mirror mine so nicely, so perfectly. And when it does happen, those articles and reviews that they write, they tend to jump straight off the page out at me. So yes, yeah, Sam was one of those. And when my band toured back in summer 2018, I think it was, he was commissioned to review the show for Kerrang! on our Scottish dates. I think we played Glasgow for that one. And I actually got to meet the guy. I remember the meeting really well because I always get a little nervous around people that I respect. And I get to meet him for the first time. But I remember that he went for a handshake and I just pretty much assaulted him with this overlong hug. And I thanked him for being there. I must have come across as a bit of a needy twat, but honestly, meeting people that influence me like that, I find it so fulfilling, it's weird, these people were like rock stars to me. So, moving on to now, through his writing, I knew that he was into horror, his letterboxed account is backing all this stuff up, so I reached out to him, and would you believe it, that Dracula, Prince of Darkness, is one of the man's very favourite films. So... Ladies and gentlemen, without more ado, please welcome to A Year in Horror for the very first time, Mr. Sam Law. Right, okay, we've been talking a long time. I'm going to start this because I don't want to miss this story. So we've been talking a lot about your writing. I will give you a big introduction in the uh, before it comes on, but I just want to say, you just started a story with, I ran over David Tennant. Um, what's going on? Yeah, it was running down the, so St. John's College, uh, where I was, I was living at the time. 
And I don't, I don't remember what it was he was there for, but it was like, for whatever reason, they weren't able to shut the college. Obviously, they weren't able to shut the college off to the students at the college. And I was just barreling late for a meeting or late for a lecture or something over this bridge, this bridge of size, which is like a replica of the bridge of size in Venice. And there were people standing with cameras and funny dress, which in that place wasn't necessarily not a day-to-day occurrence. Right. I was just like, oh, something weird's going on here. And I properly ran over, like, was just barreling down. You know me, I'm a big guy. Um, shoulder checked somebody in odd Victorian dress. And then, like, kind of turned around. And I was like, hang on, I know that face. Oh, no, those, those aren't tourist cameras. These are real cameras. And it was like, it was David Tennant filming whoever he was there at that point. For people, for illustri- illustrative purposes, the Stephen Hawking film, The Theory of Everything. Um, so Stephen Hawking didn't work at St. John's College. He worked, um, I think, mostly at, I'm going to get crucified for this if I get it wrong, but like Queens or Emmanuel College or something like that. But they filmed a lot of it in St. John's College because it's quite accessible and so it's that familiar old sandstone building and the bridges and old court and new court all of which are you know more than 200 years old i think so it's very commonly used as a film set so i don't even remember what that was but i remember they shot like elizabeth the golden age and having like be walking out to get lunch and having like um kate blanchette in character as elizabeth ii just standing there it's like oh, cool, I'd love to go and say hello to her, like, just wave, because this was post-Lord of the Rings. And it's like, no, no, she's she's in character, don't approach her. Um, and you had, uh, I think it was Clive Owen playing Walter Raleigh, probably. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. And he was kind of more kicking around. You kind of come over and, like, high-five or fist pump in. So, yeah, you, you, you got quite a lot of experiences. And I've kind of run into people weirdly quite a lot like that over the years. But sorry, backtracking to that to explain my kind of history in film is whenever I first started writing for anything of any kind of broad circulation, I was a film freelancer and then a film editor for uh, TCS and Varsity in the kind of broader Cambridge area. Right. Um, so that's that's my, I obviously wrote about music before that as well as a film fan and a music fan. But the first kind of break that I got to really experience what it was like to write and be properly edited and be properly published to tens of thousands of people was film. Was it primarily horror film or was this just everything? It it was everything. Um, And with it being in Cambridge and kind of quite a, how how do you explain it, but quite a a high-minded readership a lot of the time. So you would be dealing with a lot of art films or a lot of, fringe foreign films which maybe and this is only like well 15 or 16 years ago so you're not going too far into the past but it was a time when foreign cinema wouldn't be consumed in the same way that it is today because of netflix or amazon prime and things like that um so you would be covering you know niche korean or what were niche korean films at that point whereas now you've got korean films that are winning for best film at the oscars um and at that time we were covering like Lady Vengeance or something like that and you had people who felt very st- I didn't really love Lady Vengeance when it came out uh, which is not a horror film but like a Korean revenge film I remember giving it like a three star review and being like it's pretty good but it's not Old Boy or you know one of the other films like that and having people like sending in like really angry letters to us uh, we covered basically everything but there was always a focus on like the new David Lynch film or the new Range 
Korean film or French film or something that had a bit more artistic merit, they would always push towards, but you would cover all kinds of stuff. Were you able to interview the stars and things like that at that point? I did once get um, partially through a competition and partially through kind of contacts and that got to go to see Stephen King um, whenever he was touring uh, Lisey's story. I didn't get to, you know, face-to-face interview, but you were kind of there to shake hands and listen to him do a reading, uh, which was a very, very cool experience. In terms of Stephen King, maybe second or third after Bram Stoker, relating to today's podcast, was probably my favourite, most influential on me as a writer, as a horror writer, and probably more so because I've read maybe 500 or 600 pages of Bram Stoker work, because that's all there is, whereas I've read hundreds of thousands of pages of Stephen King work, because there's that much more of this. But I did get to go and see him. He was a very interesting experience, like a large man and kind of like when I mentioned Stephen Hawking. So I didn't meet Stephen Hawking once as well, or I, I brought, he ran over my foot. Um, <laughs> but it's somebody who kind of like their pop cultural identities may be based a lot in the 80s or 90s or 70s sometimes. And that, that's the picture of them you have in your mind. And then you meet them Stephen King at this point, early 2000s. And you're like, oh, he's, he's quite an old man. Now, and that's not who you... Yeah. you have in your mind and when he reads his own work he reads it in a like a quite a peculiar deadpan almost so there's not a lot of dramatic license he really likes to let the words speak for themselves so that was a very cool experience although it was that bc story which was a book that kind of he cared a lot about it which is why he came to the uk to do a book tour um as limited as it was but he did he did travel for it which he doesn't do for a lot of his books and it kind of disappeared from trace but they adapted it for the screen this year, I think, mm-hmm. with um, Julianne Moore. So it was that book. So that's kind of, I, I really liked that book. I really admired it. It was a really um, avant-garde kind of high, super high concept book, which only you would think would only really work on page. But it was cool to see it be rediscovered or kind of brought back into the limelight again this year with an adaptation, which was quite difficult to do, I think. When I was younger, books were my into horror because I was too young to get the, the films. And then at one point, my mum just said, go on then, have at it. So I was able to go to the video shop and do what I wanted. But it was always books that my parents were like, fine, you have what you want. So I'll be getting it and I'll be able to read it. And it was just like this thing in my hands, like the, the gateway to all this stuff that I wasn't able to access and then all of a sudden I could so that was sort of my introduction was your similar were you books first or were you like no I wasn't this is going to sound like it's staged or something but like I very clearly so I growing up I I come from rural northern Ireland like the closest town to where I grew up was Palomina which is kind of quite small town mentality anyway like very conservative northern Irish and I came from a farm out in the countryside which is maybe six or seven miles from it so I was and this was very young so I discovered horror age maybe four or five but I very clearly remember the moment that I discovered it so there's probably you know mentions of Dracula or characters in the background and cartoons and things like that but I have this incredibly lucid memory age maybe four or five of getting the TV times which I think is still out there but I don't maybe not as much as a a cultural um Tastemaker now as it was back then, but looking at the TV Times and just flicking through it, and they had the film section and they had the picture of Christopher Lee as Dracula in Dracula Prince of Darkness. And just saying to my mom, it's like, Mom, I, I want you, it was on like 11 or 12 o'clock, like, Mom, I want you to, to record this for me. I want to see it. My mom obviously was like, 
no. <laughs> you're, you're like a four-year-old kid. Um, this isn't appropriate. And I, like, I have a lot of nightmares. I still have a, a very active imagination. And obviously, this was like putting fuel in a fire. So it's kind of like, no, that's that's not a good idea. But also, I can be a real pain in the neck. So I just continued to pester. And I think she probably thought back. She's like, well, yeah, I grew up with, with the hammer horrors and things as well. It's not actually that scary. Uh, so eventually, she recorded Dracula, Prince of Darkness for me. On a whim, on a complete whim, kind of, I had no idea what really what it was or any kind of background. I was like a kid, so I didn't really understand anything uh, about it. And I remember getting up really early and waking up my sister, who was maybe like three at the time, and going downstairs and having figured out how to work the VCR specifically for this and watching it before they got up. And it just it literally blew my mind. And it was the first one um, that I saw. It wasn't like the 58 one came after that. So the 66 uh, Dracula Prince of Darkness was the first one I saw, and it really massively broadened my horizons in terms of what was possible in literature and film and fantasy in the world generally. So I was up, up until that point, I was a kid, I was like interested in cattle, sheep, tractors, and that was kind of it. There was Dracula, and then at some other point, one of my aunts gave me a VCR of the land before time, and that introduced me to the idea that dinosaurs were a thing as well, and it was those two, two films particularly you know, sent me spiraling off into this world of, you know, fantasy and literature and then science and history and things like that as well, which up until that point, I think I was probably, so school, primary school in Northern Ireland had reading groups divided into, you know, high achievers, moderate and, you know, remedial basically, kind of like not really that interested, probably would rather be out in the field somewhere. And from watching Dracula, Prince of Darkness to my mum probably quite intelligently deciding to, pivot off this and be like oh well you enjoyed the film would you like to read the book and I thought this was the real book that I was reading but it wasn't it was like um one of the penguin classics abridged right. for kids adaptation still you know a fairly hefty book it was 150 pages but not actually the full Dracula and she would sit and read it to us and then she did get us the real Dracula and would read it to us as well and then that got me and then eventually I was like well if this is in these pages I'm, I'm going to learn it for myself so reading so like literally the first book I ever read and cared about was Dracula and I remember my primary school teachers like you know if Sam's getting better which is good but then like finding me in class and they were like trying to teach you know this is sentence structure this is how you put together a sentence like Sam why aren't you paying attention and finding that I like like literally had Dracula under the desk was reading it and I think that really freaked them out but that was kind of the way that I got into horror and not just horror but you know books literature writing, reading, and kind of the broader world beyond just being on the farm more, more generally. All the press pictures from Prince of Darkness, they're all Christopher Lee with those eyes. I could just imagine seeing that. It's like, why would you want that at that age? It's like, yeah, keep this the hell away from me. But <laughs> like, you're like, oh, yeah, mum, can I have some of this, please? Jesus. I just love it. I just think it's so colourful as well because it was that, I don't think it was technical or that they used for it. Maybe it was. I forgive me for not being that kind of up on that, but it was the very lurid, presumably paint-based glove that they used, which was just opaque and very, yeah, you know, pop, popped an awful lot on the screen. And he had the, the the famously bloodshot contact lenses, but also the blood running out of his mouth. And I was just like, this just seems cool. And you can probably draw a line from like that point to me, like writing about death metal bands, like twenty-five years down the line. But like it was, it just really jumped out, to, out at me, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is the craziest thing I'd ever seen." 
And then watching the film obviously was, you know, a step beyond that again. So being really early stuff for you, did you then think, right, I'm going to explore the rest of Hammer? Or was it like a one-off and you went to, to other things like Terminator or other stuff that kids would be into at that point? I did both. Um, so I had a real passion for, for Hammer and Dracula particularly. So I went back. I remember watching So I didn't really have a concept that Dracula, Prince of Darkness was the second film in the series, or arguably the third if you count Brides of Dracula uh, at that point. But my mom obviously did. And I remember another very lucid memory is for some reason I had to go for a blood test when I was a kid. And the reward for being good to go for a blood test, which this syringe of blood being taken out of me, Dracula 1958, the horror of Dracula. And that was my reward for that. And it was, you know, again, that kind of began to spiral. Then you went everywhere after that. You know, you looked at the other Hammer horrors, you know, the Frankenstein that came before it, the Mummy, the Rasputins, everything, which I, I guess from my parents' perspective was relatively safe because this was the early 90s. So if you wanted to get into really nasty horror, you could. And they were maybe content enough that I was just watching, you know, 1950s, 60s, 70s Dracula films. But I got really into that. And then as a young man is one to do, you know, I was, I was reading things like I got into Roald Dahl and I read lots of kids' books as well. But then you were also looking, you know, what about the other Dracula films? This would have been, so I'm 35 now, and that would have been probably 1991. 1992, you had Gary Oldman or the... Francis Ford Coppola, Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I was watching the TV uh, trailers for that and being like, oh, mom, dad, you've got to take me to the cinema to see this. And they were like, look, it's not just a parental discretion at this point. It's like, that's an 18. You're not going to be able to get in to see it. So I was quite enthusiastic to see that. And I remember watching that whenever it eventually came onto ITV as well. It's difficult to trace back because I was quite so young. But it gradated, you know, I would watch individual things. You mentioned it already, so... I want to talk about the violence uh, and the imagery of this, uh, particularly with the resurrection scene. You've mentioned like the link between metal music and this. And if there was ever like a heavy metal scene in a film, you're looking at this this moment through throughout. It's just so. I can think of so many record covers that are so ace looking and this is it on film. How did you feel like then and now? I mean, as a kid watching this, I would have I would have been blown away i didn't get to see it until a few years ago for the very first time so i haven't got that sort of thing to reach to like how did you feel i thought it's quite a shocking scene like even so a lot of the hammer horrors a lot of everything that goes on in them is speaking of 1966 horror so you've got dracula prince of darkness and probably the biggest other horror film that came out that year i think was probably carry on screaming and like nowadays there's not actually that much difference between like a vintage hammer horror and the, and the Carry On film. But Dracula, Prince of Darkness, the reason it's remained a favourite for me is because it has a visceral element to it in the resurrection scene, but then also in the killing of Barbara Shelley's character, the staking of her, she was the first, I think maybe the first vampire that was staked on screen while still conscious. Something, there is something like that about it. And then the final death of Dracula scene where, where he drowns, which is three very visceral scenes, which... Yeah impacted me a lot as a kid and still do today you know you still watch it and rather than being like this is nonsense 1960s camp it's like no this is actually really unsettling stuff and another element particularly about the the dracula resurrection scene is it mirrors so i I grew up in a farm as i mentioned already um we were a beef farm and whenever you slaughter a, a cow for beef you shoot it 
you hang it up and you slit its throat to drain the blood. Right. So I found, you know, I was like, oh yeah, this is actually what you, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about it in that level, but I knew in the back of my mind, it's like, yeah, that's, that's what you would do if you wanted to, mm-hmm. to kill and drain somebody. So it was, had another layer of realism or another layer of visceral impact because of that knowledge as well. Jesus Christ, that's a lot. There's a lot going on in just that scene. To, to actually hang someone upside down, slit them and drain them, bloody fuck. <laughs> and then the, the, the imagery that follows from that as well, like the really I- iconic hand coming out of the mist. Like that's your metal album cover, is that hand yeah. out of the mist with the ring on it. And you're just like, oh, here we go. And there's that difference between, and that's why maybe Dracula, Prince of Darkness was a good introduction to Dracula and Hammer Horror as opposed to Dracula 1958. It's because in Dracula 1958, you first meet Dracula and he's the, like quite a, a genteel character. Like he's, he's almost like a vicar. He's yeah. like, hello, my, my name is Dracula. Welcome to my home. Whereas this, your introduction to Dracula is like 30 or 40 minutes of slow, dread-filled build-up. Somebody getting clunked over the head and their throat slit. And then from that pile of blood, oh, I mean, yes, there's the preface to Dracula Prince Darkness where you see him being killed at the end of the first film. But your proper introduction to him is somebody being clunked over the head, throat slit, blood pouring into a pile of ash, and then this hand coming out of the mist. And it's just like, for my money, there are very few horror films which have had that level of cool or that level of aesthetic command still to this day. I love the first film, but I think this one, for, for me personally, tops it. And it's purely because of Christopher Lee's performance. Like, because he's not speaking, because he hisses, uh, and that makeup and the eyes, as you say, they're so bloodshot and the, the blood at the mouth, everything about this performance is actually scary rather than pretty close to the book, as they were with the first film, trying to get the, a fan base to engage again with the, the Dracula character. This wasn't the concern. It was just to be as scary, to have as many hot women as possible. And do you know what? It's a... Again, to use that word, visceral imagery. Whenever I think of this film, I'm thinking, and it's my favourite film from '66. Um, it's it's just this appearance from Christopher Lee. Like, how do you feel about him in this compared to that first film? Do you think it's an improvement, or would you rather have some conversations? So I'm kind of a little bit divided. I agree with you in that this film is definitely more effective as a horror film. Uh, and I think it all kind of gels together quite well where you've got that performance, which is like an animal performance, gelling with the willingness to show this really upsetting imagery of, you know, people being drained of their blood, Barbara Shelley being staked, you know, really a much more ruthless filmmaking style, much more ruthless even than the, the films that came later in the series. It was Prince of Darkness is the most visceral of all of those films. So I definitely think that it's more effective as a horror because of that. But as a Dracula purist who jumped off that film and went and read the book and found out that Dracula is quite an interesting character, and then you go down the rabbit hole and Dracula's, you know, it's a metaphor for sexuality, a metaphor for sexual disease, a metaphor for um, like the English uh, wariness of foreign travelers taking their women and things like that. I do think that Prince of Darkness loses something to what the first one had, particularly in terms of its representation of sexuality. Um, like that, the first film's uh, imagery of you know him opening his chest and, and you know, drink from my blood, which then came back in, in the subsequent film too. I like that stuff as well. And I think that's very interesting subject matter to look at. 
And part of me is kind of like, well, it is a pity that Prince of Darkness doesn't really have that. But at the same time, it is a trade-off. It's a trade-off of, you know, leaving out the intellectual stuff and bringing in the pure horror of it. And Prince of Darkness does have, aside from Christopher Lee's performance or anything, it does have subtext or, you know, maybe not subtext so much as, you know, from the center supertext of that first scene with the priest telling them that, you know, vampires aren't real, like, yeah, um, uh, addressing mass hysteria and things like that. And that's what it does have. That's its kind of cultural or soci- sociocultural commentary is that rather than the traditional vampire mythos and you know, what that's supposed to represent. So, yeah, that's a very long way of saying, yes, I like the performance in this, but I also like the stuff that was notable by its absence in Dracula Prince of Darkness too. What, what's your take on the on the story for why he doesn't... Um, for why he doesn't speak any lines. Do you believe Christopher Lee's take that he didn't like the script enough to actually say any of it? Or do you believe Sankster's take that he felt that it wasn't necessary to write any Dracula lines for this one? I don't believe Christopher Lee. I think it's a great story. I, I really do. And I initially, I didn't know there was another take on it. So I just thought, fair play. But when I was reading the backstory on it, it makes far more sense that he's just said that for creative effects years down the line or whatever, or maybe, maybe even like, you know, in the, in the press of junkets of the time, you know, to say something like that. I mean, it's a far cooler story, but if that was the case, then there would have been dialogue ripped away after he had spoken, you know, if he didn't speak, if he chucked out his line, then the reaction line would have to be ripped from the script as well. And mate, and where's that going to end? You know, then I, I just don't buy it. <laughs> You <laughs> only you only had something like sixteen lines of dialogue in the first film, so yes. there was never a lot of dialogue. And kind of as a massive Christopher Lee fan, massive Christopher Lee acolyte over the years, I tend to believe him. But kind of with experience in the press and understanding how binary narratives are rarely actually binary, it's maybe there was an element of him saying, "Look, you know, you can write this stuff, but you can't really say it." To steal a line from Harrison Ford, and an element maybe then of the the creative team, Terence Fisher and Sangster who were like, well, if he's not going to speak, you know, an unspeaking threat can be intimidating in its own different way as well. Yeah, I guess. Either way, like, I'm cool. It's not going to ruin ruin this film for me. That, that i tell you one thing that sort of, I, I, I didn't mention this in the, the pre-chat stuff, but one thing that sort of annoys me about it is how easy he goes down. Um, because if, if you think with the first film, he has been around for hundreds of years, and at the end of it, finally, he's undone. But with this one, he, he gets back, and I think it, maybe it's two or three nights that he's around, and then he's undone again. You know, it's, it's not fair. And it, I think he's like, come on, he, he, you're, you're the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> you don't get one. Oh, it, it bugs me. It is the limitation for the Hammer films. Like, we're in the first one. It's like, oh, so Jonathan Harker arrives, and he's like, I'm at the end of a long journey, and then... In this, actually, I'm maybe mixing the films up, but there's an element where they're like, we're at the end of a long journey and we're in Karlstadt, which I think is supposed to be Germany. And then it's like, oh, we're going to go home. And then it's just like like a one-day carriage ride. And it's like, so are you, where are you actually supposed to be? And it's the technical and narrative limitations of, you know, hammering out an 88-minute film. It has to be 88 minutes, you know, using your sets from like loads of different films and using the same actors and trying to figure out you know, where do we draw the line and then have it almost be inherently episodic because of that? It's like, I, 
I don't think they did plan the seven Hammer, Hammer uh, Dracula films be as kind of Dracula Rises, Dracula's dead, Dracula Rises, Dracula's dead, Dracula Rises, Dracula's dead, as they did. It becomes almost unavoidable whenever they, uh, they're working with the, the limitations, budgetary and logistical as, as they were. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That music was composed and conducted by James Bernard. He is the man who scored this sickening filth. The scene that this corresponds with is like a funeral march through the woods and it's so perfect. It evokes a folk horror feel due to that damp soil and the surrounding trees. It's all rather beautifully English and it sounds almost wistful and pining for a peace that once was. Yet later on in the score, this tranquil and almost breezy feel, it's substituted for grit and menace whenever Christopher Lee's on the screen. And at those points, the score actually shakes around and the pace picks up. And we know that that infamous vampire is just around the corner and he's just about to deliver a wicked, cursed bite to his victim's neck. It always sounds traditional and it always sounds at the top of its game. This score is brilliant. But if you were wanting to watch this film, well, just where would you do that? Well, in the UK, if you subscribe to Virgin TV Go or Studio Canal, I always find Virgin TV Go funny. Who's got that? Uh, Sorry, or Studio Canal, then you're in luck as it's streaming for free on those platforms. It is on pay-per-view, but if you want the lovely Blu-ray, it's out there and it's reasonably priced. As for podcasts, in July 2019, a very British horror podcast. They released their hour-long Prince of Darkness episode. And in March of the same year, Monster Attack did theirs. And there we go. That is Dracula, Prince of Darkness, my number one, my number one film from 1966. And thank you very much to Sam Law for joining in on the discussion. Right. 
right, you've made it through 1966. Now, it's my favourite bit. Just going to choose what we're going to be battling with next month. I have today got all the numbers written and folded up inside a laptop bag. You would think I could find a tumbler or a hat, but no. This is what I have become. Uh, here we go. We have, just opening it up. 2016. Hmm. Hold up. Just going to look something up. It is that year. This is good. Okay, 2016 contains two of my favourite films from the past couple of decades. It is going to be a corker. And if my memory serves, which is the reason why I looked up to see if there was anything really good... I think it was the Ghostbusters reboot year as well. Not sure of that. Regardless, sweet. 2016. And before we go, I just want to ask you, please feel free to contact the podcast at a year in horror at gmail.com with any films that you think that I've missed or simply you found a film from that year that you think I should give a go. You can follow me at Walla Not Weller on Letterboxd and on Instagram, or you can hit me up at Not Weller Pod on Twitter. Also on Letterboxd, I've listed all of the years that we've covered so far, and I've put all the films in the orders in which they came, so you can have a look at that. Don't forget about the Patreon. I love it. Every time I get one of those dings and someone else has joined, it just makes my day. It is www.patreon.com forward slash a year in horror. The first tier is a £3 tier that just keeps the show running. And you know, if you enjoy the show and you want to show your appreciation for it, just pop along there. There's also a £4 tier, which means that you're going to get all the extra content as well. But as well as that, you're going to get that warm, fuzzy glow that you get for helping out the show. And that extra content, there's some real good stuff amongst it. This will include a monthly radio show as well. We've got some Q&A stuff coming up, video nasty stuff, anything I can think of. Great big thank yous finally to my wife Claire Waller who was doing all the Photoshop posters for each episode. She also does a sci-fi corner jingle and the spooky jingle. Also, One Trick Pony, thank you very much for designing that Ace logo and the calendar design that's on the thumbnails. Max Newton and Lucy Foster, they did the A Year in Horror theme music. And our guests, Benjamin Bowles, John Tantillon, Daryl Buxton, and of course Sam Law. Big thanks to you guys. But most of all, a massive thanks to everybody out there for listening to this right until the end. I'm going to see you next month for a podcast that's going to feature some of the best horror from the 21st century, I guess. Yeah, I'll see you on the other side. Every you do, don't fall.